Podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this session, we will abstract selected articles from the July 2010 issue. The table of contents for this issue and all of the complete articles are available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on the Society website at naspigan.org. The headline article of the July issue is an invited review entitled Asymptomatic Colonization by Clostridium Difficile in Infants, Implications for Disease in Later Life by S. Janji and J. Thomas Lamont, a giant in the field. In the summary of this excellent review, the authors state that it is still a mystery how 60 to 70 percent of healthy neonates can acquire, harbor, and tolerate the toxigenic pathogen C. difficile, which in children and adults causes pseudomembranous colitis. C. difficile toxins A and B appear to be recognized and processed by the neonate's gut immune system, and lifelong immunity may be induced before the organisms are finally excluded from the colon microflora as the neonate matures. This unique and temporary symbiotic relationship raises a number of interesting questions regarding the interactions between the colonic microbiome and the human host at various ages. The authors discuss this phenomenon in depth and point out areas for further research necessary to identify the cause of this symbiotic relationship in the neonatal colon. The first original GI article is entitled Evidence of a Generalized Defect in Asiner Cell Function in Schwachmann-Diamond Syndrome by Storman and colleagues. In Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, the Asiner cell population of the exocrine pancreas is severely depleted. The authors hypothesize that a similar deficiency of Asiner cells might occur in the parotid gland. They measured serum pancreatic isoamylase and parotid amylase activities in 16 patients with Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, 13 healthy controls, and 13 disease controls with either cystic fibrosis or fibrosing pancreatitis. Parotid amylase and electrolyte concentrations were measured in stimulated parotid gland secretions. Starch digestion in patients with Schwachmann syndrome and controls was assessed by breath hydrogen testing with and without enzyme supplement. The authors found that serum pancreatic and parotid isoamylase activity was significantly lower in patients with Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome than in healthy controls. Serum pancreatic isoamylase, but not parotid isoamylase, was significantly lower in diseased controls than in healthy controls. Secreted parotid gland amylase protein concentration was lower in patients with Schwachmann syndrome than the healthy controls. Secreted parotid amylase concentration in diseased controls was the same as healthy controls. Secreted parotid chloride concentration was inversely correlated with amylase concentration in Schwachmann syndrome, but no such correlation was seen in healthy or diseased controls. When patients with Schwachmann syndrome ingested starch without enzyme supplementation, breath hydrogen excretion was significantly higher than that of the healthy controls. However, when starch was taken with enzymes, breath hydrogen was statistically the same as controls. The authors concluded that the mutations in the SBDS gene locus on chromosome 7 
appear to cause a generalized functional abnormality of exocrine acinar function, not simply of the pancreas. The next GI article is entitled, Antibodies to CBIR1 are associated with glycogen storage disease type 1B, by Davis, Valentin, Weinstein, and Poliak. Glycogen storage disease type 1B, or GSB1B, is a congenital disorder of glycogen metabolism associated with neutropenia, neutrophil and monocyte dysfunction, and an inflammatory bowel disease that mimics Crohn disease. The enteric microflora is indicated in the pathogenesis of Crohn disease, but its role in the development of GSB-associated inflammatory bowel disease is unknown. Antibody reactivity to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or ASCA, E. coli outer membrane porin C, or anti-OMP-C, and bacterial flagellin anti-CBIR1 have been associated with Crohn disease, but their relationship to the inflammatory bowel disease of GSD type 1B is unknown. The authors identified 19 patients with GSD type 1B with or without inflammatory enterocolitis. Records were reviewed for radiographic, endoscopic, and serologic results. Assays for ASCA, anti-OMP-C, and anti-CBIR1 were obtained. Results. Seven of the 19 patients had intestinal inflammation, mostly ileocolonic involvement. 17 of the 19 GSD type 1B patients, regardless of inflammatory bowel disease, had elevated anti-CBIR1 levels, 6 of 7 in the IBD group and 11 of 12 in the group with no IBD. 13 of 19 had elevated anti-OMP-C levels, 5 of 7 in the IBD group and 8 of 12 in the group with no IBD. 11 of 19 patients had elevated ASCA, IgA levels, 4 of 7 in the IBD group and 7 of 12 in the non-IBD group. The authors concluded that the majority of patients with GSD type 1B had elevated anti-CBIR1 levels. The antibody did not differentiate those with and without a diagnosis of GSD type 1B associated inflammatory bowel disease. They postulated that seroreactivity to flagellin may represent immune dysfunction rather than active enterocolitis in this patient population. The next original GI article is entitled Novel Screening Assay Performance in Pediatric Celiac Disease and Adult Dermatitis Herpetiformis by Jaskowski, Donaldson, Hull, Wilson, Hill, Zone, and Book. Objectives. Several serologic assays are commercially available to aid in the diagnosis of gluten-sensitive enteropathy. The author's objectives were to assess the performance of a novel combined antigen screening assay for celiac disease. The authors used de-identified sera from 111 pediatric patients suspected of celiac disease, 130 adults with dermatitis herpetiformis, and 77 pediatric and 49 adult normal controls. Sera from 10 patients with IgA deficiency and IgG antibodies against one or more of the traditional serologic markers associated with celiac disease were also evaluated. All sera were screened for IgA and IgG antibodies against tissue transglutaminase and deamidated gliadin peptides by enzyme immunoassay in a single test well. 
In addition, all sera were assessed for each individual marker and isotype using separate enzyme immunoassays. Results the IgA-IgG anti-tissue transglutaminase and deamidated gliadin peptide immunoassay screen was 92.6 sensitive and 94.3 specific in pediatric celiac disease and detected one patient with Marsh 3C intestinal changes who was negative for IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase. This patient was not IgA deficient. All 10 of the IgA deficient sera gave positive results by the tissue transglutaminase deamidated gliadin peptide enzyme immunoassay. Sensitivity and specificity of the tissue transglutaminase deamidated gliadin peptide screens in retrospective and prospectively acquired dermatitis herpetiformis patients were the same at about 65% and 100% respectively. Conclusions. This new IgA-IgG anti-tissue transglutaminase deamidated gliadin peptide enzyme immunoassay screen is more sensitive than IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase alone in pediatric celiac disease. The new assay may allow elimination of the current recommendation of measuring total serum IgA when testing patients with suspected celiac disease. The next GI original article is entitled VSL number 3 improves symptoms with children with irritable bowel syndrome, a multicenter randomized placebo-controlled double-blind crossover study by Guandolini and colleagues. Irritable bowel syndrome or IBS is common in children but currently there is no safe and effective treatment. Some studies of probiotics in adult IBS patients have been promising but no positive study has been published involving children. The authors investigated the efficacy of VSL number 3, a patented probiotic preparation containing eight strains of live, freeze-dried lactic acid bacteria in children 4 to 18 years of age with IBS in seven pediatric centers. Children meeting eligibility criteria were assessed by a questionnaire for a two-week baseline period. They were then randomized to receive either VSL number 3 or a placebo for six weeks. Initial treatment was followed by a two-week treatment-free washout period, and then each patient was switched to the other treatment and followed for a further six weeks. Fifty-nine children completed the study. Although placebo was effective in some of the parameters and in as many as half of the patients, VSL number 3 was significantly superior to placebo P less than 0.05 in the primary endpoint, that is, the subjective assessment of relief of symptoms, as well as in three of four secondary endpoints, abdominal pain and discomfort, P less than 0.05, abdominal bloating and gassiness, P less than 0.05, and family assessment of life disruption, P less than 0.01. No significant difference was found in stooling pattern between placebo and treated groups. No adverse effects were recorded. The authors conclude that VSL number 3 is safe and more effective than placebo in ameliorating some symptoms and approving the life quality of children with IBS. The next original GI article is entitled Proteomic Analysis of Biopsied Human Colonic Mucosa by Gourley, Yang, Higgins, Riviere, and David. To assess the power of proteomic studies, 
the authors compared two methods for analysis of proteins in normal human colon mucosa, two-dimensional gel electrophoresis and two-dimensional liquid chromatography in conjunction with mass spectrometry. They used ingenuity pathway analysis to examine the identified proteins as to function, location, and relationship to disease. 2D liquid chromatography identified 550 proteins, whereas 2D gel electrophoresis identified 107 proteins, 18 of which were not observed on 2D liquid chromatography. Cancer was the function associated with the largest number of proteins in both methods, where there were 236 proteins by liquid chromatography and 61 by gel electrophoresis. The largest group of proteins was from the cytoplasm, 49.1% of those detected by liquid chromatography and 49.3% of those seen on gel electrophoresis. 270 of the total 568 proteins were related to 26 different categories of human disease. 200 of these were found in the large intestine, 227 in blood, and 149 in serum or plasma. The authors conclude that these two analytic methods are complementary, even though many more proteins were identified with 2D liquid chromatography. Thus, liquid chromatography might have greater utility in examining changes in the proteome of the colonic mucosa during disease than gel electrophoresis. However, since some proteins were found unique to gel electrophoresis, the methods chosen for a given analysis should be matched to the proteins under study. These new methods have promise to increase our understanding of the GI tract in health and disease. The first original hepatology article is entitled Predictive Value of Bile Duct Dimension Measurement by Ultrasound in Neonates Presenting with Cholestasis by Fitzpatrick, Jardine, Ferrant, Karani, Davenport, Miele Vergani, and Baker. The author's aim was to clarify the diagnostic and prognostic significance of the common bile duct dimension measured by ultrasound in neonates with conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. They retrospectively enrolled all infants younger than three months with extrahepatic biliary dilation of greater than 1.2 millimeters on fed ultrasound examination. They reviewed clinical, radiologic, and laboratory data to determine mode of presentation diagnosis, interventions, and long-term outcome. 878 patients presented with conjugated hyperbilirubinemia between the year 2000 and 2005. Median gestational age was 39 weeks with a range of 24 to 42. Inspissated bile syndrome was the most common diagnosis. Common bile duct dilation equal to or greater than 1.2 millimeters was noted in 81 patients, or 9% of the total. 76 of these 81 had adequate clinical data for analysis. There was a slight male predominance in this group, 41 of 76. The median bile duct diameter was 2 millimeters, with a range from 1.2 to 12.3 millimeters. 17% of these infants required either surgical or radiologic intervention. 41% of the infants had spontaneous resolution of bile duct dilation, including 8% who did not experience resolution of dilation, but, as the authors say, grew into their dilated duct. The median size of the bile duct at presentation for those who required intervention was 4.7 versus 2 millimeters for the remainder, P 
less than 0.001. Of those who resolved spontaneously, the median size of the duct at presentation was 1.8 millimeters. The authors concluded that bile duct dilation less than 3 millimeters on a non-fasting ultrasound in neonatal cholestasis is unlikely to be significant medically, whereas dilation greater than 4 millimeters is likely to be associated with cholelocal malformation or a need for intervention. The intermediate group between 3 and 4 millimeters is likely to be associated with inspissated bile syndrome following the resolution of which innocent biliary dilation may persist. The next hepatology article is entitled Biliary Atresia in Canada, the Effect of Center Caseload Experience on Outcome by Schreiber, Barker, Roberts, Martin, and the Canadian Pediatric Hepatology Research Group. The authors state that recent European studies have reported that caseload experience influences prognosis in biliary atresia surgery. Centers managing fewer than five cases per year in studies from the United Kingdom or fewer than two cases per year in studies from France have worse survival. This study investigated the effect of caseload experience on surgical outcome of Canadian patients with biliary atresia. The authors examined a national, national database of cases with biliary atresia from 1992 to 2002 and grouped patients according to treatment center size, A, fewer than one case per year, B, one to three cases per year, and C, more than three cases per year. Survivals of patients overall, post-Kasai procedure native liver, and post-liver transplant were compared between the centers. Outcome parameters were re-evaluated for patients in the largest Canadian center which had more than five cases per year and compared to all the other centers. 230 patients were identified in four Group A centers, four Group B centers, and two Group C centers. The overall median age at Kasai procedure was 64 days. There were no significant differences in patient, post-Kasai native liver, or liver transplant survivals between the different sized centers and between all centers and the largest center where the overall four-year post-Kasai native liver survival was 39%. The authors concluded that caseload experience did not importantly affect the outcomes of Canadian children with biliary atresia. Although outcomes in Canada were comparable to those elsewhere, this study suggests that national policies directed towards timely referral and earlier age at Kasai procedure rather than centralization of care appear to be warranted. The next hepatology article is entitled Pathologic Lower Extremity Fractures in Children with Allergial Syndrome by Bales and colleagues. This is a retrospective study to determine the incidence and distribution of fractures in patients with allergial syndrome. Surveys regarding growth, nutrition, and organ involvement were distributed to patient families in the Allergial Syndrome Alliance of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Research Database. Patients with a history of fracture were identified, and details characterizing each patient's medical, growth, and fracture history were obtained through chart review and telephone contact. 12 of the 42 patients with allergial syndrome, or 28%, recorded a total of 27 fractures. 
Fractures occurred at a mean age of five years, which contrasts with fracture occurrence in healthy children in whom fracture incidence peaks in adolescence. Fractures occurred primarily in the lower extremity long bones, 70%, and with little or no trauma, 84%. Estimated incidence rate calculations yield an estimated incidence of 399 fractures per 10,000 person years, 95% confidence interval 206 and 698, and 127 femur fractures per 10,000 person years, 95% confidence interval 42 and 297. There were no differences in sex, age distribution, or organ system involvement between the fracture and non-fracture groups. The authors conclude from this admittedly small retrospective study that children with allergial syndrome may be at risk for pathologic fractures at an early age and in a unique distri distribution favoring the lower extremity long bones. The first nutrition article is entitled Iron, Zinc, and Copper Nutritional Status in Children Infected with Helicobacter pylori by Janjatik and colleagues. This study sought to evaluate the association between H. pylori infection and iron, zinc, and copper nutritional status in symptomatic children. This cross-sectional study was carried out in 395 children 4 to 16 years of age with upper GI symptoms. H. pylori status was determined by 13C urea breath test. Iron status was determined by hemoglobin, serum ferritin, and serum transferrin receptors. Copper and zinc serum concentrations were evaluated. Epidemiologic data, dietary assessment, and anthropometric indicators were analyzed as potential confounding factors. Results. H. pylori infection was identified in 95 children, or 24.3% of the total. Anemia and iron deficiency were found in 12.0 and 14.3 of the H. pylori positive and 8.9 and 11.0 of the H. pylori negative children, respectively. There was no association between H. pylori infection and anemia, odds ratio 1.54, or iron deficiency, odds ratio 1.35. Crude beta coefficients showed that H. pylori had no significant effect on hemoglobin, serum ferritin, transferrin receptors, copper, or zinc. However, adjusted results suggested that H. pylori infection had an increase in serum copper concentration of 9.74 micrograms per deciliter compared to controls. The authors concluded that H. pylori infection was not associated with iron deficiency, anemia, or zinc concentration, but that a positive relation with copper status was found after adjusting for confounding factors. This concludes the July 2010 JPGN podcast. There are more articles of interest in this issue, including articles titled Gastric Emptying Time of Oral Contrast Material in Children Undergoing Abdominal CT, Quality of Life in Children with Crohn Disease, Epidemiology of Uninvested Gastrointestinal Symptoms in Adolescents, a population-based study applying the Rome 2 questionnaire, Molecular Characterization of Intestinal Microbiota in Infants Fed with Soy Milk, and a commentary by the Espigan Committee on Nutrition entitled Practical Approach to Pediatric Enteral Nutrition. Access to full texts of all articles is available through the JPGN website, jpgn.org, 
or through the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. The editors of JPGN are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Thank you.